This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 49. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Mark Vonderwell, also known as Googie on microcapclub.com. I met Mark at the Microcap Club Leadership Summit last year in Chicago, and over breakfast, we discussed his investing approach. It was during this conversation that I was introduced to Mark's particular focus and pension for investing in special situations. After meeting Mark in Chicago, I read a few of his articles he posted on microcapclub.com and thought he'd be the perfect guest to discuss investing in special situations. The goal for this episode is to learn more about different special situations, Mark's approach to investing in spinoffs and rights offerings, for example, and his advice for new microcap investors. Thank you again for tuning into episode 49 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Mark Vonderwell. But first, a word from our sponsor. A comprehensive streaming of market data, research, and portfolio management application for you. QuoteStream is a real-time streaming quotes and research system designed for the day trader, retail investor, institutional investor, both new and old. QuoteStream offers low-latency, tick-by-tick data, advanced charting, comprehensive technical analysis, news, and research. With no software to install and no servers to maintain, QuoteStream is the ideal solution for you. Go to stocknewsnow.com and start your free seven-day trial. Click the QuoteStream banner in the header or real-time quotes in the navbar to get started building and managing your investments. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I have Mark Vonderwell, better known as Googie on microcapclub.com on the program. Mark, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. It's a pleasure to have you. And again, thank you for joining me. So as we do with each interview on the uh, Planet Microcap podcast, let's start with your background, please tell me. I, I'm an engineer with an inordinate interest in investing. Um, I have a BS in physics, PhD in mechanical engineering. I've worked for 20 years in uh, doing hydraulic system design and simulation. I mostly did all the simulation for it on construction and mining machinery, uh, excavators mostly. Uh, I have no formal investing education of any kind, um, but I had a kind of a big interest in it and read a gazillion books. Uh, back in 2005, when I was between jobs, I took the Series 65 exam uh, just in case I might change to an investment management. And I passed it, so I'm a registered investment advisor if I want to be. Um, but, but, but I only manage my own money and my family's money, and that's it. Mm-hmm. 
And are you still are you still uh, working in the field in, in engineering, or are you a full time investor? Yeah, um, last September my company decided I needed to move to Tucson, and I decided that I didn't want to move to Tucson. <laughs> I, I got two kids in uh, college in Wisconsin here, and I've got uh, two more kids in high school, and the high school kids especially didn't want to move, so. So that was it. I retired. <laughs> and so for, for 10 months, I've uh, been a full-time investor. You know, I, I think there's a trend here. I, I, I've interviewed quite a few uh, professional engineers on the program that are now <laughs> microcap investors. I mean, it, what, what's, where's the link there? Can you maybe explain? Well, they've got quantitative skills, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a little quantitative skill helps in the investment world, so engineers have it. Right. You know what? I'm, I'm, I think I might go back to school now uh, uh, just for engineering. I mean, I'll finish business school first, but uh, then I'm, I'm going to finally pass AP physics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay. So you said you got your start investing, uh, you know, while you were working in the field. So what, what was that first book or that first uh, spark that, that got you really excited about investing and then microcaps in particular? Yeah, so no formal training of any kind. So I, I guess my first job was a little boring. I, I took that job because my wife had a job in the same city. So if you're a little bored at work, why you, you get busy on the side? So I, I read every investing book in the library. And then I went to the next town's library and I read every investing book and then on to the next little town. And <laughs> Um, so I'm I'm totally shaped by books and everything I know is from books. Um, and there were three books in particular that uh, influenced my thinking. Uh, the first one is a famous book, a classic, What Works on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And, and that book is well known. It basically goes back through the Standard & Poor's CompuStat database that has stock returns and information going back a hundred years. Um, so the thing that struck me there was uh, the returns by market cap that's documented in that book. Um, and I think most investors kind of know this. Uh, the Standard & Poor's 500 is returned about 10% a year over the last hundred years or so. If you go down to the small cap sizes, then you Returns are about 12%. If you go down to the microcap size, they're 12 and a half or 13. Um, but what really struck me was the category market cap below 25 million. And the average return over the last 100 years or whatever it was on stocks below 25 million. And this is from memory 20 years ago now, but I believe it was 18%. Hmm. Now, now 18%, uh, that's better than 10% on the Standard & Poor's 500, you know, and everything. That's, that's almost double, but, but the truth is it's, it's way, way, way better than that, right? So, so for example, I, I got a kid in college right now. I fund his Roth IRA. He gets a summer job. He's got some earned income. In goes the money into his Roth IRA. So he's 20 years old. When he's 65, every $1,000 in there invested at 10% um, will be worth $73,000. Hmm. 
But if you get 18% for 45 years, it's worth $1.7 million, right? 24 times higher. So being an engineer, I, I understand 18% compounded and, and what it does, right? Pretty incredible. So that, that really hit me pretty hard. And of course, in the book, it says, well, you know, these stocks are uninvestable. A money manager cannot invest in these stocks because they're so illiquid that you can't possibly put together $100 million to work in these little tiny things and, and get those 18% returns. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I just got out of school and I'm trying to invest $20,000, <laughs> not, not $100 million. And I don't think that I'm really going to move the prices of any of these stocks. And I also don't have investors that are going to pull their money away from me. It's my own money. So I don't have to worry about liquidity and being forced to sell these things in a flash. I don't care. In fact, I was pretty much already a buy and hold investor or hold for a long time at least. So I didn't really see the problem. Why can't I invest in these little bitty things? Mm-hmm. And and what was that? What was your first experience like? Without you don't have to name the company, but like, what was your first microcap that you came across that you were like, or after you read you read a couple of these books? What what was that first experience like? Uh, I think the first microcap I bought was G three Apparel. Okay, and and. Uh, I don't own it anymore, of course, but G3 Apparel, I think, maybe has gone up 20 or 30 times since I bought it back in 1996. Um, I, I made a little bit of money. I think I bought it at five and sold it at eight or something like that. But if I just held the gosh darn thing, <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a micro cap anymore, right? That's a very successful company now. Um, so I, I kind of got lucky early on and, and I started investing in the little things in 1998. Mm-hmm. And at the time, everyone just wanted large cap tech stocks and anything little was selling at these ridiculously low prices. So I probably could have just thrown darts, right? And mm-hmm. I was going to do really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so maybe that's what happened, you know, but, but I started making money right from the start. It, it really wasn't a, I, I didn't have this learning curve where you lose a lot of money first, and and the, probably luck. Cool, you're l- lucky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, right. So, what would you say were some of the like bef- maybe even before you you picked that first, or maybe when you started in in '98 when you started picking some of the the smaller uh, names? You know, what what were some of the key lessons that you pulled from your reading? Um, because you said you have no, you had no experience going into this. But what were some of those key lessons you pulled that you then put into action when you started to uh, starting to build your portfolio? Well, there's there's a couple more books that that influenced me a lot. Um, okay. There was uh, a book titled uh, "Investment Intelligence from Insider Trading," right? And this was a University of Michigan professor that had done a study of returns following insider purchases and sales um, from 1975 to 1994, so roughly a 20-year period. And I own this book, so I, I pulled it off my shelf yesterday, and, and I wrote down the exact con- data that 
got me excited about the little guys. So here's here's what it says, right? If your book value is above a billion dollars, and an insider, if there's net insider purchasing in January, then the stock returns beginning February 1st and carrying on for 12 months are 1.7% higher than stocks that don't have net insider buying. Hmm. If you go to a smaller size, 100 million to a billion, then the stocks with insider purchases, net insider purchases outperform by 2.3%. If you go to 25 million to 100 million, and this is book value, by the way, all right, the book value between 25 million and 100 million, you outperform by 3.1% in the 12 months following net insider purchases. And if you go to book value below 25 million, you outperform by 6.2%. So the average stock down there in the 25 million market cap below gets you 18%. And if you pick and choose the ones with insider buying, you get an extra six. So we're up here at like 24% a year, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's pretty compelling to me. And then again, everyone laughs and says, "Oh, you can't invest any significant amount of money in those little bitty things." I didn't have any money; <laughs> it wasn't a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it seems like your your initial lesson because the the main thing we're focusing on today and and why I wanted to speak with you. Uh, after after we met at at um, at the microcap club uh, uh, leadership summit last year, is because I remember when we were sitting at, at I think it was breakfast and we were talking about special situations, you know. And this is a topic that I haven't really covered yet on the podcast. And it, it sounds like your career and your trajectory was going right to this moment. <laughs> or, or 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 this type of, of of investing. So so for my audience, before we get into it a little bit deeper, um, you know what what does special situations investing mean, and how does that term relate to everything that you've just said? Well, special situations. I guess you call them that because there really is no category that they fit into. <laughs> So, so it's all kinds of unusual things that happen to investors, right? Um, some unusual uh, event that probably most investors ha haven't seen very often and maybe they're confused by or don't understand what's going on. Um, so that's... Uh, that's a terrific thing to be an expert in. You want to buy from the confused, right? <laughs> and and that's what a special a special situation investor tries to do. Let let me buy from either people who are confused or people who are indifferent. Mm -hmm. So it seems like your first step in that was you saw okay in under twenty five million. There's this you know there's the uh, what was it eighteen percent. And then also for under 25 million in book value, 
um, when there's insider net insider purchases, 6%. You know, it seems like that's something that, I mean, would that be something that is like a first step or falling into that special, special situations category per se, or, or how would that work? Yeah. Well, so then what drove me to special situations was the third book and, and it's a oh, famous book. Okay. <laughs> <All> right? <laughs> and, and that's, you can be a stock market genius by, by Joel Greenblatt. And it's a very well-known book. But if you read that book, the first thing it says is, well, all the opportunities are in the really small stuff. <laughs> and when you look at uh, small stuff that you want to buy, you're absolutely definitely want to align yourself with insiders, <laughs> right? So, I mean, Joel Greenblatt in that book immediately says everything that I had read before. The opportunity is in the little stuff, and you want to make sure you're aligning yourself with insiders. You want to be on doing the same thing that they're doing, uh, consistent with what I've seen before. His wrinkle is, is that um, you also want to uh, find these unusual situations, these special situations where the investor base gets stuck into these situations that they don't understand and they don't really want to be in. And maybe they're stuck with some security that is worth such a little bit about of money they don't even care. Mm. Right. So so that's the the, how I tie those together is that Joel Greenblatt is telling me the exact same thing that uh, the prior two books that kind of had influenced my thinking. Mm -hmm. So actually in the article that you posted um, back in 2013 on the Microcap Club, you, you wrote an article, it's called, and I quote, lessons learned investing in microcap spinoffs, end quote. And, um, you know, what, what were some of those additional lessons that, that you learned? Yeah, so there's lots of different types of, of special situations. Spinoffs is one of them, right? So, and I, most people are familiar with spinoffs. Um, some usually middle-sized company has some small little division. They're going to separate it off, create a new security, and distribute the new security um, to their shareholders. Um, another special situation a company went bankrupt. They get their debt disposed of, most of the debt gone in the bankruptcy proceedings, and then the securities are distributed to creditors. And at least years back, the creditors were banks, right? So they get stuck with stock. They don't. They're not. They're in the business of loaning money. They don't want to own stock, so they would dump it. Now these days, hedge fund managers are buying up all that debt, so. The opportunity in bankruptcies isn't what it used to be, but but you get the idea. People are getting stuck with something that they don't want and maybe they don't understand and they're trying to get rid of it. Um, divestures. About half of everything I buy is, is a divesture these days where there's some company, usually it was a small cap company, and they got some business, usually their major business, their biggest business, that is no good. And they lose a ton of money on it. And down in the nano cap land, they go, right? <laughs> the, stock, the stock sinks down there to 25 million or something. Um, and then finally, they give up. 
and they sell that loser business or sometimes they just shut it down and you know what's left perhaps and and frequently is the case that if they're willing to shut down their business that they've relied on for some years it's usually because they got something else you know hiding behind it that's pretty good right so um, this is a real opportunity that's often missed if if you look at the financials on uh, uh, this company, it shows nothing but losses for years and years and years. The, the stock, which used to be owned by small cap managers, is now a nano cap. And they, the dollar amount that people have in their accounts, it's, it's you know, one-tenth of what it used to be. They don't even care. <laughs> so no one's paying any attention. Screeners don't pick it up because the historical financials just show a disaster. Um, but what might be left is little, perhaps, but sometimes it's pretty good, and it can go, grow right back to the moon, right, and become a small cap again. So I'm always looking for, for those. Mm -hmm. So, Mark, what, what are some other uh, types of special situations that are out there? Um liquidations sometimes so the the company has been such a disaster they finally just give up and they're going to liquidate the company so so the investor base owned that company to own the business and and now all the really the expertise you need is valuing the remaining assets so i don't buy liquidations but a lot of special investors uh, special situation investors do um, merger securities. So, oh, your stock gets bought out for $80, but when they were negotiating the price, uh, they decided they'd throw in a, a little warrant, you know, for the next five years to buy more of the stock or something. And so you get your $80 and you get this warrant that's worth, you know, a buck or something. And then the warrant gets traded on the open market and all you care about is getting your dollar out of it. So you want to sell it, and so does everybody else all at the same time. Um, and kind of one of my favorites that has been more interesting in recent years is a rights offering. So some company um, distributes rights to their existing shareholders to buy more stock, typically at a discount. So, oh, we need to raise a little capital. We're not going to go to the, the, do a secondary offering or do a private placement. We're going to do a rights offering. We'll let our existing shareholders buy more stock at a 15% discount or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, those are the ones that I know of that, that I look at. You know, when it comes to valuation of a company, you know, how, how do special situations like the ones you've described affect the valuation of a company? And does this happen despite little to no change? Like, let's say the valuation goes down, you know, does that happen despite there being little to no changes in the underlying fundamentals? Well, a lot of the special situations are companies issuing new securities, Right. I mean, th there was no valuation on a spinoff. Right. There was nothing that it just the company creates a new security and distributes to you in a rights offering. 
when they distribute those rights, you didn't ask for those rights, and there's no value on those rights. You just get these rights that show up in your brokerage account, and you got to figure out what to do with them. What what's this right? <laughs> um, so uh, merger security is the same thing, right? The security you didn't ask for and don't know anything about and isn't worth hardly anything gets d- dumped into your account when the merger closes. So there's all kinds of opportunity for indiscriminate selling that people get small amounts of money in these securities dumped on them and they don't know what it is. They don't really want to even spend any time figuring out what it is because it's worth so little money they don't even care, right? So so there's there's really opportunity for big mispricing because of that. So it seems like you're kind of, so it's like if you recognize that Okay, special situations happening right now. They're doing a rights offering. Oh, they're doing a spinoff. I mean, what are the certain things that you look for in each that you th- that then make it investable to you? Well, uh, different different ways. Um, basically, yeah, you got to jump jump in now and evaluate this business, and you got to know something about business valuation. And there's a lot of work to be done. Um, the, the other thing is, is you know, you, you, you want to align yourself with the insiders. Mm-hmm. So if there's a spinoff happening here, what are, why are the insiders doing this, right? They control this company. Why are they doing this spinoff? Mm-hmm. Is, is, is there something really, really good about this business that they know about and they would like to break it off so they can get stock options? On, but on this segment of the business only, right, and make themselves rich, especially when you see the CEO of the big parent company decide that he wants to go with a little bitty spinoff instead of staying with the parent company. Oh, goodness. <laughs> right. So we better dig into this one mm-hmm. um, in a rights offering. OK, the company wants to raise capital. Why do they want to raise capital? So I've seen some, and I won't name companies, but they do a rights offering to raise capital, and they do. And three months later, they're using their excess cash to buy back stock. Why did we raise capital by selling shares to our existing shareholders to turn around a few months later and use the cash to buy back the stock. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, the rights offering is an opportunity for the insiders to own more of the company. It's some illiquid little security. <laughs> I can't go on the open market and just buy it up myself because it's illiquid. I'd like to own more. I control the company. Maybe I got the control of the company by activism, right? I won a proxy battle, and now I control the company, and I see it, and it looks good, and I want to own more. Let's do a rights offering. Hmm. I will I will take my rights. I will exercise them. I will also oversubscribe for the shares that investors that don't exercise their rights. Um, I'll take them right through oversubscription privilege and I'll increase my ownership of this company percentage wise 
So, so I'm always looking for what's the motivation of the insiders. And in rights offerings, that's always it. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the insiders going to do? Are they going to participate in this rights offering? Are they going to oversubscribe? And if they are, next question is, what is it they see? <laughs> what is going on here that they want to own more of this company? And, and by the way, <laughs> a rights offering is the only time when you see massive insider buying and the stock price goes down. Huh. <laughs> That's what happens. In a, in a rights offering, there's massive insider buying, but the stock goes down. And, and, and why, why does that happen? Well... Look, what you're a shareholder in some Joe company that's lost 90% of its value. You're disgusted. You don't even want to look at that. And then your broker calls you or you notice when you're logged into your internet brokerage account that there's some little right here to buy, put more of your money into the stinker of a company. How do you feel about it? <laughs> I, I don't have any interest in those rights. I don't want to buy more of this company. So you don't exercise them. And, and the academic studies show the exercise right is about 60% in rights offerings. Mm. 40% of the people don't participate. Even though the rights are letting you buy more stock at, a say, 15% discount to the current trading price. Right? So these mm. rights are worth something. And, and some people are a, a, care a little bit more and they say, oh, I don't want to own any more of this company. But look, they're giving me the right to buy for 15% less than what the stock is trading at. So, hey, I'm going to outsmart this. You know what? I'm going to sell the shares I own right now. And I will use the money I get from selling the shares I own right now to buy back these shares in the rights offering at a 15% discount. So what happens to the share price? There's a whole bunch of people trying to do this at the same time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so that share price is going down, right? And, and they just fall, fall, fall. Usually a few per- it stays a few percent above the rights price. You know, So if the stock was trading at $3 and they do a rights offering at $250, the stock's going to fall to $260. You've got to give it a few weeks. But that's what's going to happen. That stock's going to go right down because everyone's selling it 280, 270, 260 in order to raise cash to participate in the rights offering at 250, right? So that's what I'm saying. A rights offering is when there's massive insider buying and the stock goes down. That's, that's exactly what happens. So if this company is good, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to, to, to either buy the rights if they're traded, right? Some traits are rights are tradable. So you can sell the rights on the open market. And a lot of people will do that. Oh, instead of exercising the rights, I'll just sell them. And somebody like me will come along and buy up those rights and participate in the rights offering and oversubscribe like crazy to get some of the shares that 40% of the people don't even participate. Um, so if, if that's a good company, go for it. Hmm. And and sometimes, sometimes this is you 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 can know um, that the the insiders want it because they'll they'll do something like this. 
All right. So instead of offering shares of common, which are freely tradable, we'll offer shares of convertible preferred. It pays a 5% dividend in cash every year, but it's a preferred security, which is really a wonderful thing to own, the convertible preferred, right? You pick up the 5% dividend, then you still get the upside in the common if the company does well from the convertibility. Um, but we're not going to bother to list the convertible preferred. So if you participate in the rights offering, you're going to have a security that's totally illiquid. You can't sell it. Mm. So no, nobody wants to participate. Right. So what happens? Mm -hmm. The insiders participate and they oversubscribe like crazy. Mm -hmm. so, so they buy them all up themselves. Wonderful. But yeah. Right? <laughs> so that, that's what they want. So why are they, why are they issuing? And by the way, that's what you see almost every, every time you see them doing. They issue a security and a rights offering that's not going to be traded. The insiders always oversubscribe and they buy like crazy. Right. <laughs> and they make a ton of money. This is, uh, you're like opening a whole new world that I didn't, whenever I've seen these things happen, it, it's finally explained. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's better yet. All okay. Right? This, is, this is a rights offering Keep, I participated in big time. Keep them coming. Right. I'm loving each one. <laughs> all right. Here's another company. Again, the company's been a real loser. It sank down. It lost 99% of its value, right? It's a, it's a penny stock. It's trading around 280 or something at the time of the rights offering. But they do a rights offering and they decide that this company is going to turn around and they know it and they're going to make a lot of money. But let's create the security that I would like to own. <laughs> so, so in the rights offering, you could buy an extra share of stock. The stock was trading at 280. You could buy an extra share of stock, but also two long-term warrants. Right, one of them a ten-year warrant. I think the other one was a seven-year warrant for four dollars. Hmm. Right, and they made the rights tradable. I bought a whole bunch of these rights up for a penny. Right, <laughs> <laughs> and the rights gave me the ability to buy these units at four dollars. I got one share of stock that was trading at two eighty. So for the other dollar twenty, I got a seven-year warrant. To buy stock at 450 and a 10-year warrant, 10 years, right? That's a long time to buy shares at $5. Guess what happened? Um, Nobody wanted those rights. They were trading at a penny. The CEO of the company bought tons of rights up, exercised them, uh -huh. <laughs> and he owns a ton of the company now from buying up those rights at very low prices. And not only did he get the stock, but he got long-term warrants, which leverages his investment. Mm -hmm. And of course, guess what's happened? That was in 2013. The, the stock at 280 at the time is now over six. Wow. And, and he's still got seven years left, six years, six and a half years left on those 10-year warrants, <laughs> right? If, the, if that stock continues to rise, he's going to make a ton of money. 
So if you see a rights offering where they got some exotic security, oh goodness, just put everything down and go figure out what is going on right there, right? Because I'm telling you, there's there's opportunity. Are these situations, are, are they in companies that you are already doing your due diligence on? Or did you see the news and you're like, oh, I'm going to dig deeper. But it seems like you yeah. might not have time to dig deeper quick enough to, to participate in, a, in, in these offerings. I mean, am I... You know, so so I guess the main question being is how, how do you find these special situations? Yeah, so different ways. Um, spinoffs, you know, there's a website, corporatespinoffs.com. Mm-hmm. You can go there and you can see all the spinoffs that have happened in the last five years. And then you can see all the ones that are scheduled to happen in the next year or two. Right. <laughs> so it's it's easy to find spinoffs. Just go to that website. Um, Even in micros, too? Yeah, all of them. Uh, all of them. Okay. They all got to be registered with the SEC, right? If you if you do a spinoff, you've got to file a Form 10 with the SEC, and so everyone can pick them up. They just search the Form 10s for spinoffs and put them on the list. You know, it's it's easy. So you don't even have to do that. You don't have to search the SEC. You just go to corporatespinoffs.com, and there's the list. They do it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, a um, a rights offering, which is one of my favorites, uh, they're easy to find. You do a Google alert on the word rights offering. <laughs> and, and every day I get an email with all the rights offerings, right? And if there's any one of them that I don't already know about, I click on it. <laughs> and you read the press release about the rights offering, right? And, and then you can quickly find out what's going on there, right? Oh, just go read what's going on there. And you can find out whether you're interested in that rights offering or not. Oh man, I'm gonna do a podcast on setting up a Google alert. I feel like everybody I've interviewed, they have like I used to do a lot of Google alerts, and everybody I, I've interviewed now has just tons of Google alerts, you know, <laughs> going all yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And it's the easiest way. I mean, it is, yeah. Know, so uh, a divesture, they're they're a little harder to find. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a Google alert that I use. Okay. Uh, definitive agreement to sell. Right. So usually when they have a contract that they have those words in it, definitive agreement to sell. So I get a Google alert with all the press releases with definitive agreement to sell in it every morning. Now you get all kinds of garbage in here, right? When you when you when you do a Google alert on rights offerings, all you get are rights offerings. It's nice. A lot of them are overseas, um, and I don't mess with overseas stuff, so I just ignore those. But and rights offerings, by the way, are really common overseas. In the U.S., they're kind of rare. Mm-hmm. So when, when you see a rights offering, it usually means something. Um, divestures, the other way to get them is if you got a screener that has earnings from continuing operations in it. So what I use is uh, American Association of Individual Investors Stock Investor Pro. And you set up a screen that looks for earnings from continuing operations that are different from the gap earnings. Mm. There you go. <laughs> so if earnings from continuing operations are different than gap earnings in that screener, a lot pops up on your list. And, and you'll see everything that sold something, you know, in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So okay. easy to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the other way I find divestures is... Uh, I'm always looking every day at the reported insider buying, mm-hmm. and any of those companies that are micro cap land, 
I click on them to find out what's going on, right? And if you see in one of their recent press releases that they sold something, you dig into it. Right. So do you also, as part of your, your investment strategy, when it comes to, to you know, the, the discovery phase and discovery process, I mean, is it, is it really come down to just looking for the, these types of special situations or are there companies that you find and you're, and then all of a sudden like, Oh, well, there you go. Here's, you know, special situations just popped up in a company I've been following, you know, like how, how does that work? You know, has that happened to you in your career? Yeah. Once in a while. And, um, you know, I guess for a lot of your investors that are listening, they're not going to be special situations investors, right? <laughs> That's all I do. I, I just buy special situations, nothing else. I don't, I don't pay attention to anything but special situations. But, but if you're not going to be a special situations investor and go look for them, it still might be good for you to have a little bit of understanding of what happens in these situations. So when you do see it pop up, just randomly looking at whatever you're interested in, uh, you you might recognize it. So going back to this article, you know, you mentioned some reasons that Mr. Greenblatt, you know, author of the of the book, you can be a stock market genius, that he cites for, and I quote academically verified spinoff outperformance, end quote. You know, what are the reasons uh, for this? Yeah, so so one of them I mentioned before is that in a spinoff, you know, some security gets put in people's brokerage accounts. They didn't ask for it. Maybe they don't want it. If they're an index fund, they have to sell it because this new security isn't in their index um, maybe it's a small cap when you're a mid cap mutual fund, you have to sell it, right? So there's all kinds of indiscriminate selling. Um, sometimes the, the dollar amount is like 1% of your investment in the parent, right? 1% or 2%. So whether you get, you know, $1 or $1.25 doesn't matter to you, Right. Even though it's 25% different, right? You don't care. This is a trivial bit of my money. So, so indiscriminate selling is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the other thing is, is there's no information on spinoffs. If, if you look at Yahoo Finance for the financial information, what they post are the historical financials. And usually in a spinoff, all kinds of changes happen to that company that make it different than what its history is. And if you look in the Form 10 that you're required to file, you have to have pro forma earnings. Considering all the changes that we're making, what, are, what would our earnings been historically for the last year and the last quarter? They have to post those. But you'll never see those unless you actually go dig into the Form 10 because all the data services carry historical financials. Mm-hmm. So you can't even get any information on it. There probably is no analyst coverage. Right. And um, a lot of times the insiders don't want any coverage either. Right. Their their stock options are going to be priced usually based on the average trading price on the first day of trading. So they could go out and promote their stock and tell everyone what a wonderful new little company this is. 
or they can let it trade for a couple weeks before they do that and get their stock options priced as low as possible, right? <laughs> so they don't want to, to talk to Wall Street in some cases, right? I, I don't want to help you understand what's going on here. And then the other one is uh, release of entrepreneurial spirit. So I've worked in a big corporation, a Dow company. What a bureaucratic disaster, right? <laughs> and, they're, and they're all like that. <laughs> they're all like that. Uh, so when you spin off a little piece of the company and... All the bureaucracy perhaps can be eliminated, and now you got a management team there with stock options based on the performance of his little division. He actually cares. Um, they're going to become much more entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. And the, the last thing I would add is spinning off divisions doesn't make any sense, right? Especially a microcap. So you just created another publicly traded company that's got to deal with Sarbanes-Oxley and make all these SEC filings and do all this crazy stuff, right? That costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Remember, everyone goes and does mergers because, oh, we can put all these things together and save a bunch of money, right? But when you're splitting apart, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So there has to be a reason they're doing it, right? And that sometimes it's that that little piece is a little gem, right? Sometimes it's that that little piece is losing money, right? And causing it's maybe it's in a startup phase, mm -hmm. and uh, it's trying to accelerate, spending a bunch of money on R and D and expansion, and it's posting losses. And the parent company is mature, and this little startup we got is hurting our earnings. We, we need to spin it off. Um, doesn't mean that it's garbage. In fact, maybe it's a terrific opportunity. That's They were willing to take the losses, right? Because it's got such good opportunities. So, you know, there's usually a reason. Anytime the company gets smaller, divestiture is the same thing. Uh, especially a, some company that's down at nano cap size, the last thing they want to do is get smaller the, the bills from their SEC filings and Sarbanes is killing them, right? They don't want to sell off one of their divisions and become this little teeny tiny nano cap that no one pays attention to. So when they do it, there's a reason. Um, so you, you have to go find out what, what that reason is. And usually there's, sometimes anyway, there's something pretty compelling going on there. Mm-hmm. You know what's interesting, Mark, that, that I haven't heard yet, and I, I'm, I'm curious if that was on purpose or you just, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily the most important thing to you, but does it, for you, it doesn't matter what sector any of these companies are in? I mean, do you tend to focus just on in technology or healthcare? I mean, what's, is it sector dependent or do you find that there are certain special situations in certain sectors that you're like, ooh, oh, here we go, you know, like start rubbing your hands together and, and getting excited, you know what I mean? Like what's, what, how, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I don't care what sector they're in as long as I can understand it, right? So 
Well, my problem lately has been is they're spinning off these little biotechs, and I don't know anything about that. So, <laughs> so, so if I can't figure it out, I usually leave it alone, right? Just I can't outsmart that one. I, I just stick. You know, I own typically five, six, seven, eight stocks, right? And I, and I'm 100% invested all the time. I got my whole net worth in it, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight. So. I need to understand what's going on there and be really confident that I'm not going to lose money at least, and and I'm pretty optimistic that I'm going to make money. So I, I just I just say no on gobs of them. It's it's out of my circle of competence, is what Buffett would say. But but otherwise, I look at a lot of a lot of different industries. I own insurance and. So I own some financials. I own a lot of technology. Once in a while, it helps being an engineer, understanding what's going on in technology. Um, but I'll I'll take anything. Right. Like you'll can like when you when you you see it come up on your Google alert, you'll consider it. But then you know once you look a little deep, you're like, oh, all right. You know, I don't. I, yeah. Like you still like for you, it's still important to wrap to understand the company and you know at least what they do. You may, maybe not. I mean. Yes, fundamentals, of course, but it, for you, it, even with this type of investing, it's still important to understand the business. Absolutely, and I, I will say maybe I should make a comment on that. You know, there's all kinds of academic studies that show that spinoffs outperform the average stock by about ten percent a year, right? I mean, there's and that's gone back for like forty-five years, and every few years a new study comes out that confirms oh that the spinoffs just keep outperforming. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, you could throw darts at spinoffs and you'd probably do all right. Uh, a rights offering is completely the opposite, right? <laughs> rights offerings are often done by companies whose shares are sinking like a stone and they're doing a rights offering to raise a little capital to stay afloat, to keep them out of bankruptcy. And the reason they're doing a rights offering is because if they go to an investment bank to do a secondary, they'll say, no, you, you are such garbage, I won't do it. <laughs> so the only people you can get money from is your own shareholders. And even then, you can't get any money from them unless you offer them a 15% discount. All right. So do not just willy-nilly buy rights offerings. You will not make money. All right. So the, the only rights offerings that are an opportunity is you got some usually activist hedge fund manager that's got some control of some nano cap company and he needs to buy more. <laughs> he wants to buy more. He he's trying to. And he, oh, I'll do it by rights offering. Lots of people won't participate. I will oversubscribe and I'll increase my ownership. That is what the rights offerings you're interested in. Interesting. So, yeah. I was going to say, so it, I, the underlying theme, I think, for this interview is, and I, and I think you might agree, is the idea that watch the insiders. When it, comes yes. to, when it comes to special situations investing, it's all about what are the insiders up to Let's and trying it. to understand their incentives, correct? Yes. And it's a confusing situation, right? Mm -hmm. If, if, if you don't specialize in rights offerings, this right shows up. Mm -hmm. But 
my investing friends, they get notices from their broker that they've got some rights in their account. And they ask me, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, and, and oh, uh, we want to we want to exercise that. That's the reason we bought the stock was to get those rights. And we're going to oversubscribe. They don't understand what's going on here. Right. And and most people that invest in stocks don't even know what a rights offering is. Right. And then these rights show up in their account. Um, so it's a confusing situation. Um, the best thing to do in a confusing situation is follow the ones who understand. <laughs> that is the insiders. They know everything about what's going on in this confusing situation. Interesting. So, I mean, yeah, you just that basically you just that was you just nailed it right there. Um, at least for me. Um, so yeah, that's that's not, not just me. I mean, Joel Greenblatt says that too. Right. right. I mean, absolutely. Oh, you absolutely have to figure out what the motivation and the interests of the insiders are. Go look at their stock op options package on that new spinoff. Are they taking a low salary and big options? Ah, ah, that you might want to buy that. Yeah, it's just like a, a basic game theory table. So I just took this. That was one of my classes just recently, and uh, for econ, and we we made the tables. It's it's almost like you. This is what you're doing when you're trying to consider what the insider's incentives might be. You know, it's like, okay, if they did this, you know, this is the outcome. If they don't do this, this is the outcome versus, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, obviously you're, you're still looking for special situations. You said, you said to yourself, this is your, your passion. This is how, this is your strategy. But would you say that the strategy has become more saturated, so to speak, you know, more people are becoming more aware that this there there might be an opportunity to invest um, using this type of strategy. Yeah, so you know, in Joel Greenblatt's book, he says, "Oh, spinoffs make you lots of money, and they'll continue to make you lots of money forevermore." Um, but I really do think there's so much attention to spinoffs now. Everyone knows this story <laughs> that the opportunity is not what it used to be. And the, the other factor is, is that Sarbanes-Oxley has made it really expensive uh, to spin off little microcaps. So all of the opportunity, or at least the big opportunities in spinoff investing is some big company spinning off a little microcap, <laughs> right? So I used to invest in companies that Oh, shareholders received one share of this spinoff for every 20 shares of this big monster S&P 500 member. One share for every 20. And then you check, and the parent company is trading for 50 bucks, and you're estimating the spinoff ought to trade at six. <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're literally spinning off $1 for every $100 that the parent owns. This was like free money. I, I back in the late '90s and the early 2000s, I made so much money just buying up these little microcap spinoffs, um, and it just doesn't seem to be happening to me anymore. And and I think part of the reason is maybe Sarbanes Oxley mm -hmm. is just too too expensive for little companies. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, it goes back to a problem that we've mentioned a couple couple times on this podcast. How uh, you know we want to see more quality names and microcaps and it's just it's few and far between because it's just it's too expensive to be a public company you know and uh 
right. pretty small micro caps. So yeah, no, I, I, I hear you on that. So yeah. I will say that that the on yeah. the other hand, rights offerings and and I kind of learned about rights offerings way back around 2000 or 2001 when Price Smart was spun off. Mm-hmm. Price Smart is run by the the um, I think the Price family who founded uh, Costco, and Price Smart was uh, some Caribbean version of Costco, right? Mm-hmm. And they did a rights offering. <laughs> and and after that rights offering, which the insiders participated in, well, the stock just went to the moon, right? <laughs> so that was my first experience with rights offerings. Um, and so I already figured out back then, oh, there's, there's some opportunity here. You've got to pay attention when they're doing a rights offering. But what's happened in recent years is activism. Mm-hmm. So, so I kind of talked about it before a little bit, but you're seeing little activists come take control of these nano caps, and and then doing rights offerings to increase their their holdings. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm that's all I've been buying actually the last three or four years. Everything I touch is is a rights offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's more of those than there used to be. Right. By the way, what what are your what are your conversations like with management at conferences? I mean, you know, do you go in and let's say they just did a rights offering? I mean, what types of questions are you asking them? You know, uh, I mean, I feel like you kind of have to play a game in, in some of these questions when, you, when you're confronting them. Or not confronting, that might, not, that might be a strong word. Yeah, that's right. And uh, what they're doing, I, you know, I don't know. I I don't think it's immoral, but they're taking advantage of the situation for sure, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, I, yeah, yeah, I guess you. I don't talk to management very often, to tell you the truth. Um, so, I, I, I it's really not been too much of an issue. I I guess there's been a few of them I talk to, but I don't really bring it up. I usually see what their motivations are by what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, gotcha. Got it. So what would you say – okay, so you pretty much went over you know, what you've seen change with regards to special situations investing that you've seen over your 15-plus you know, your year career. I mean is there anything else that you see as, uh, as happening out there and, and changing this, this landscape? Um, well, I guess the only other thing is, you know, there's so much, uh, it's really not related to special situations, but just there's so much internet information available on these little dinky companies. Um, it's so easy to research these things now and, and find out what's going on. Uh, you hop on the SEC and you pull up the rights offering document, right? And the SEC requires them to have a statement about whether insiders are going to participate. And, you know, uh, so it's just, it's so easy to get information on the internet that it's kind of uh, fun, maybe. Um, right. So, all right, this, this is, again, uh, you're a listener, so you know that this is my favorite question to ask. So uh, what experience do you look back on as, as the most meaningful and educational in your investing career, other than reading as many books as you possibly can? Yeah, I mean, that was the only answer I had to that. <laughs> 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 that's, 
but I, I really did get my experience from from reading books. Um, and I didn't I didn't have to go through a period of time where you lose money for three years before you figure it out. Uh, I made money from the very beginning. I'm sure that was at least partially luck. But but my whole investing philosophy was defined 20 years ago by reading every book in sight and and digging out the things I talked about before. And um, I've, I've been doing the same thing ever since, just getting a little better at it all the time. I was going to say, have you ever been tempted to deviate from your philosophy? Or have you always been like, nope, no, no, stay, yeah. stay disciplined, stay focused? Every once in a while, I just buy something uh, with a little insider buying in it or it's not really a special situation and I never make any money. I, I got to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, also an, another question that I had is, you know, what, what's the difference between a rights offering and let's say a secondary financing? Is there a difference? Yeah. So, you know, if you go overseas, rights offerings are common. Um, but in the United States, we do private placements instead. Um, so a private placement, oh, you find some buyer. Sometimes it's the insiders of the company, and you just sell shares directly to the insiders. Um, and the only people that have an opportunity to participate in a rights offering are the current shareholders. So you distribute rights to your current shareholders, and they're the ones that have the opportunity to buy at 15% discount or, or whatever it is. The only thing is some of the rights are tradable. So if you want to sell the rights to somebody else, you can. Um, but, but the only people that are allowed to participate in a rights offering are current shareholders. And see, that's bullish, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you can go out and, and do a secondary offering and sell shares to somebody else. And if your stock is overpriced, that's exactly what you want to do. But what if you believe your price is ridiculously cheap? then do a rights offering and let your own shareholders produce the capital that, that you need, right? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's insider buying, usually the insiders own shares and they're buying like crazy too. It's a big deal. Now, why don't companies just do a private placement and sell it to the insiders, right? If, if you own 20% of the company and you want to own more, let's just do a private placement and sell it straight to uh, the insider, and he gets all of it. You don't have to consider the other shareholders. Why don't you do that? Well, because you get sued. <laughs> right? So, so after the stock triples the next year, there's a lawsuit. Right? So if you, if you look at the SEC filings on rights offerings, there is always this little clause that says one of the reasons we're doing the rights offering is to provide an equal opportunity for all shareholders to participate. That is the do you, you cannot sue me clause, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so that is the reason for a rights offering. You want to sell to yourself. You can't do a private placement because you'll get sued. You know that if you do a rights offering, 40% of the people won't even participate, right? And you can oversubscribe and you're going to get most of the shares yourself anyway. Hmm. So that's why a rights offering is bullish, so I'm going to forecast your advice that you're about to give for new microcap investors. And the first thing you're going to say is stick to your knitting and get really good at it. And oh, <laughs> Well, that, that's good advice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would offer several, several things. Um, if, if you're going to invest in the microcap space, um, 
you need to understand what you're getting into, right? <laughs> so, so I really think you should study history a little bit, and specifically the history of returns of microcap stock prices. <laughs> All right, <laughs> and and what you'll see, and go to what works on Wall Street. And they'll show you the returns in microcap going back for 100 years. They're all right there every year. And, and just see what happens in the returns of, of microcap stocks. <laughs> um, and what you'll see is that they run up like crazy. And then they crash. And then they lay there for three years. And then they run up like crazy. And then they crash. <laughs> and then they lay there for three or four or five years. And then they run up like crazy, and it just goes over and over and over again, right? So this is like institutional investors can't buy microcaps, right? Or sometimes they cannot, especially the little ones. But all of a sudden, once they've run up like crazy for one year, suddenly they find a way to buy them. <laughs> all of a sudden, we're offering a mutual fund that specializes in the microcaps, and the money pours in because the returns are there. And then everyone fights over them, and they drive them up like nuts. Um, and sometimes they drive them way too high and then, and then they, you have two years in a row where they're, they're down 25%, you know? So there's a, there's a long, long history. I, I actually have the history sitting here in front of me. I, I don't have what works on wall street, but I have another book called uh, data driven investing, which uses the same database to extract, um, the, uh, the historical returns. Um, and it's insane. <laughs> it's just crazy. But you need to understand that because this is what happens to you. You're investing in microcaps and you didn't make any money this year. And then next year, your stocks aren't doing anything either. And you keep looking at them like, well, the fundamentals are getting better. They got that new contract over there and, and, um, their earnings are actually rising and the stock just lays here and it just lays here and you'll drive yourself crazy. You start second guessing yourself. My, my brother who invests in the same stuff I do starts making snide remarks, how you've lost it. Right. <laughs> and this is what happens. And then they run like crazy. <laughs> so, so my advice is you need to understand that history. So when it happens to you that you don't make any money this year, you know just to pay attention to your company fundamentals. And don't worry about what the stock price is going to do. If those fundamentals, if your company is doing well, it's going to run one day or another. Right? It's going to. So, so in 2014 and 2015, that's the first time ever two years in a row I didn't make any money. Never happened. Right? Then in the last 18 months, my portfolio has doubled, right? Up 100% in the last 18 months. <laughs> but I had to suffer through the snide remarks from my family, right, through 2014 <laughs> and 2015. You have, to, you have to understand what's going on in the fundamentals of your company. And you won't understand that it behaves this way if you're new to microcaps unless you actually go study that history. So, so Mark, is there any other advice that you might have for new microcap investors? Yeah, there's a couple more things, um, and this is just from experience, right? I've been doing this for 20 years, and and I see the beginning investors make this mistake all the time. It just drives me crazy. So here's the advice: don't invest with loser CEOs. 
If the guy has been running that company for 12 years and he's never made any money, the newest little gizmo that he thinks he's going to sell isn't going to make any money either. So, so stop it. Don't get excited. Just if the CEO has a losing record, forget it. You're out, right? And the few times that I've said, oh, I really love this little company, but oh gosh, the CEO really hasn't done very much, but this is so cheap and this is such a neat idea, I never make any money. All right. So from experience, I'm telling you, don't invest with loser CEOs. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I've learned don't ignore persistent insider buying, right? So if, if an insider purchase gets posted, five minutes later, the stock is up, right? There's all kinds of day traders that look for the insider purchases being filed with the SEC and they get them in real time and they initially the stock goes up and there'll be interest buying interest in that for like 30 days, right? After that insider purchase. But then the next quarter comes along and they report earnings and there's nothing special in them. And maybe the insiders buy some more. Six months later, the stock's still not doing anything and the financials aren't doing anything either, but the insiders keep buying. What is often the case is that that company's product development cycle time is long. Right, It takes three years to get a new product to market. And the insiders are buying early. They've got a contract or they've got at least a new product coming that they know is going to be successful or they're optimistic will be anyway. And they're buying based on what's in the product pipeline. And the, it ain't going to hit the financials until they sell it, which is three years from now. So what happens to the people that follow insider buying is, oh yeah, that guy's buying again. But you know what? He was buying last year and I didn't make any money. Check the cycle time, right? It, it'll be disclosed in the filings. Go read. What product do they make? How long does it take to develop it? If it's really long, don't ignore that insider buying, <laughs> right? right? So, gotcha. So Mark, was there anything else? No, that's it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so for so Mark, for more information about you and where people can go and read your articles that you've published, uh, where should my audience go? A microcapclub.com. Under the alias Googie. Googie, yeah, G O O G I E. It's my older brother. He's thirteen months older than me. Couldn't say my name. He said Googie, and my dad picked it up, and it stuck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's where it comes from. Oh man, that's a great story. So, Mark, aka Googie, thank you so much for joining me today on the Planet Microcap Podcast. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast. And thank you, Mark, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. 
Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone.